I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. This week, I am with Bella Reichard, and we are going to be summarising a paper that I am extremely excited about. Uh, this has been years in the making, um, and, uh, and we've uh, delayed and delayed on, uh, on actually getting this uh, submitted for publication because we've uh, tried to make this as good as possible. Um, and uh, the time has now come, and uh, at uh, the listening of this podcast, uh, the paper will be available online. Uh, and this is the much-anticipated paper on the quantitative linguistic analysis of REF 2014 case studies. So, for the first time, uh, uh, we've got this quantitative and, and qualitative analysis, uh, the largest possible sample that you can get of high versus low scoring case studies. Uh, and from that, uh, a really evidence-based and fine-grained uh, analysis of what you need to do if you want to get a four-star impact case study. Uh, now, this is, of course, a retrospective analysis based on what happened in REF 2014, so let's bear in mind that things will be different in 2021. The uh, guidance, the rules are effectively the same, um, but the consensus across the community is it will be harder. Uh, the bar has been raised, so uh, this will give you uh, a sense of what you need to do at minimum um, uh, at that top end. And uh, we're going to look at the paper, we're going to read the paper, um, uh, off the back of the success of uh, the, the, the podcast uh, end of last year, uh, doing that, we're, we're going to uh, read through this, but also discuss it a bit as well. And we're going to follow up then with uh, a discussion of how we've been applying this evidence across universities around the country um, through the work that Bella and I have been doing, advising on REF impact case studies. So you get some much more practical stuff. We're going to do a webinar uh, and other things uh, as well. But I'd like to start by just introducing you to Bella. Um, now, uh, Bella is doing this paper as part of her part-time PhD. Uh, but uh, Bella comes from an already very successful career as a teacher of English for academic purposes. And uh, she's now come in as a mature student to study this REF database um, uh, leading to this paper. And uh, Bella, I wonder if you can just uh, introduce yourself to everyone on, uh, in the podcast audience and tell us a little bit about, um, about where you've come from and what you do in your day job when you're not studying ref impact case studies. Thanks, Mark. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, so in my day job, as in an hour from now, <laughs> I uh, teach English for academic purposes, mainly writing, and my current job to international students, mainly international students, um, coming to the UK to study at a university here, mainly postgraduates, and we focus on um, how to structure your writing, how to have the effect on the audience that you want to have, how to be convincing in your writing, and uh, the occasional um, grammar slip as well. <laughs> so you have this expertise and experience of how to write well um, and of course how we write an impact case study matters and we've got some quite controversial evidence coming up, up, up in this paper uh, about just how important that might be. 
Um, but uh, but this was as a practitioner rather than as an academic. And now, tell me a little bit about why you decided that you wanted to do the part-time PhD alongside this, and why why Ref Impact Case Studies as as a data source for this. Yeah. So there's two questions and two answers. Uh, one is, I think being a student can make you a better teacher. <laughs> Therefore, I wanted to go back to studying and being an active academic writer can make you a better academic writing teacher. Therefore, I thought um, that would be a good thing to do. Um, why this data set? Uh, because for me, impact really, really matters. When I first was thinking about doing a PhD some, some 10, 15 years ago, I just could not get started with even writing a proposal because I thought, who cares, who cares? I know people successfully do that, um, but I just couldn't. I needed to see something that has an application where I can have an idea of who has some benefit from me doing this work beyond me learning the skills of doing Excel. So um, when the idea of impact case studies came along, I, I immediately knew that this is what I want to do. Yeah. yeah, and I'm very pleased that, that you are. It's, it's, it's been a really exciting journey for me as well, um, learning from you and from uh, your, your co-supervisors on this. Uh, we're going to dive into the paper, um, uh, and I think it's worth just uh, acknowledging um, uh, not only the co-authors, but also um, uh, Adam, uh, who is co-supervising this uh, from linguistics uh, as well. Um, and um, uh, and just to, to prepare readers for this, we, we are going to read the paper. Um, it's a quite a long paper, so we're going to try and summarise the methods uh, if possible. We've got six pages of methods in this paper. Yes. It's, it's quite a long and complicated thing. So we're going to summarise that. Um, we uh, we may have to uh, call it a day halfway through, um, given that you've got to go and teach, and I've got a meeting, uh, and follow up on this. Um, but, uh, but we're going to do our best to make this as engaging as possible. So the title is Writing Impact Case Studies, a comparative study of high-scoring and low-scoring case studies from REF 2014. Bella, you are the, the lead author on this, and um, uh, followed by me, uh, we've got Jen Chubb from University of York now, uh, and uh, uh, we're all academic co-authors. Then we've got Jed Hull from University of Leeds, Lucy Jowett and Alicia Pert from Northumbria University who come from professional services uh, and Andrea uh, Whittle, which uh, he was one of the one of the co-supervisors on this. So it's uh, myself, Andrea um, and Adam Mearns who are co-supervising. Uh, Adam's not a co-author on this paper. So, Bella, do you want to dive in with the abstract and we'll just take it in turns. Um, we're going to uh, just kind of go with the flow in terms of how we summarise uh, the many tables and figures in the paper. But uh, bear with us and, um, and let's, let's see what we've got. So, abstract. Yeah, before the abstract, you mm -hmm. just go with the flow with the tables, figures yeah. and also the method. We're going to do that. However, um, by the time you listen to this, you will also be able to access the paper itself. Therefore, um, if you wish, Pause this right now and follow the link and get the paper and read along if you wish. Yeah, good plan. Thank you. <laughs> so, abstract. This paper reports on two studies that have used qualitative, thematic and quantitative linguistic analysis respectively to assess the content and language of the largest ever sample of graded research impact case studies from the UK Research Excellence Framework 2014, REF. The paper provides the first empirical evidence across disciplinary main panels of statistically significant linguistic differences, 
between high versus low scoring case studies, suggesting that implicit rules linked to written style may have contributed to scores alongside the published criteria on the significance, reach and attribution of impact. High scoring case studies were more likely to provide specific and high magnitude articulations of significance and reach than low scoring cases. High scoring cases, case studies contained attributional phrases which were more likely to attribute research and or pathways to impact and they were written more coherently containing more explicit causal connections between ideas and more logical connectives than low scoring cases. High scoring case studies appear to have conformed to this distinctive new genre of writing which was clear and direct and often simplified in its representation of causality between research and impact and less likely to contain expressions of uncertainty than typically, than typically associated with academic writing. High scoring case studies in two main panels were significantly easier to read than low scoring cases on the flesh reading ease measure, although both high and low scoring cases tended to be of graduate reading difficulty. The findings of our work enable impact case study authors to better understand the genre and make content and language choices that communicate their impact as effectively as possible. While directly relevant to the assessment of impact in the UK's research excellence framework, the work also provides insights of relevance to institutions internationally who are designing evaluation frameworks for research impact. Great, so let's move to the introduction. Academics are under increasing pressure to engage with non-academic actors to generate usable knowledge that benefits society and addresses global challenges. This is largely driven by funders and governments that seek to justify the societal value of public funding for research, often characterised as impact. While this has sometimes been defined narrowly as reflective of the need to demonstrate a return on public investment in research, there is also a growing interest in the evaluation of broader impacts from research, including less tangible but arguably equally relevant benefits for society and culture. This shift is exemplified by the assessment of impact in the UK's Research Excellence Framework, or REF, in 2014 and 2021, the system for assessing the quality of research in UK higher education institutions, and the rise of similar policies and evaluation systems in Australia, Hong Kong, the United States, Horizon Europe, the Netherlands, Sweden, Italy, Spain and elsewhere. The evaluation of research impact in the UK has been criticised by scholars largely for its association with a market logic. Critics argue that a focus of academic performativity can be seen to destabilise professional identities, which in the context of research impact evaluation can further, I quote, dehumanise and deprofessionalise academic performance, whilst leading to negative unintended consequences which Derek et al called Grimpact. Macdonald, 2017, Chubb and Reed, 2018, and Weinstein et al, 2019, reported concerns from researchers that the impact agenda may be distorting research priorities, and I quote, encouraging less discovery-led research, 
Though these concerns were questioned by university managers in the same study, who reported to, I quote, not have enough evidence to support that REF was driving specific research agendas in either direction, and further questioned by Hill in 2016. Responses to this critique have been varied. Some have called for civil disobedience and organised resistance against the impact agenda. In a review of Watermeyer 2019, uh, who called for civil disobedience, Reid 2019 uh, suggested that attitudes towards the neoliberal political roots of the impact agenda may vary according to the political values and beliefs of researchers, leading them to pursue impacts that either support or oppose neoliberal political and corporate interests. Some have defended the benefits of research impact evaluation. For example, Weinstein et al. 2019 found that, I quote, a focus on changing the culture outside of academia is broadly valued by academics and managers. The impact agenda might enhance stakeholder engagement and give new currency to applied research. Others have highlighted the long-term benefits for society of incentivising research impact, including increased public support and funding for a more accountable, outward-facing research system. Uh, lots of references uh, in the paper if you want to. I'm not going to uh, clutter the, the, the text up by giving them just now, um, but lots more to read if you're interested. In the UK, REF, research outputs and impact are peer-reviewed at disciplinary level in what's known as units of assessment. There were 36 in 2014 and 34 in 2021, grouped into four main panels. Each item is given a score between one star, uh, which is recognised but modest, and four star, outstanding. Impact is assessed through case studies, describing the effects of academic research, which follow a set structure of five sections. One, summary of the impact. Two, underpinning research. Three, references to the research. Four, details of the impact. Five, sources to corroborate the impact. The publication of over 6,000 impact case studies in 2014 by Research England, formerly Higher Education Funding Council for England, or HEFCE, was unique in terms of its size. And unlike the recent selective publication of high-scoring impact case studies from Australia's 2008 Engagement and Impact Assessment, both high- and low-scoring case studies were published. This provides a unique opportunity to evaluate the construction of case studies that were perceived by evaluation panels to have successfully demonstrated impact, as evidenced by a four-star rating, and to compare these case studies that were judged these two case studies that were judged as less successful. The analysis of case studies included in this research is based on the definition of impact used in REF 2014 as, I quote, an effect on, change or benefit to the economy, society, culture, public policy or services, health, the environment or quality of life beyond academia. According to the REF 2014 guidance, the primary functions of an impact case study were to articulate and evidence the significance and reach of impacts arising from research beyond academia, clearly demonstrating the contribution that research from a given institution contributed to those impacts. 
In addition to these explicit criteria driving the evaluation of impact in REF 2014, a number of analyses have emphasised the role of implicit criteria and subjectivity in shaping the evaluation of impact. For example, PID and Broadbent 2015 emphasised the implicit role uh, that a strong narrative plays in high-scoring case studies. This was echoed by the fears of one REF 2014 panellist interviewed by Watermeyer and Chubb in 2018, who said, I think with impact it is literally so many words of persuasive narrative as opposed to giving any kind of substance. Similarly, Watermeyer and Hedgeco reported uh, in 2016 on an internal exercise at Cardiff University to evaluate case studies prior to submission uh, and emphasised that style and structure were essential to sell impact and that, I quote again, case studies that best sold impact were those rewarded with the highest evaluation scores. <clears throat> Recent research based on interviews with REF 2014 panellists has also emphasised the subjectivity of the peer review process used to evaluate impact. Derek's 2018 research findings based on panellist interviews and participant observation of REF 2014 sub-panels argued that scores were strongly influenced by who the evaluators were and how the group assessed impact together. Indeed, a panellist interviewed by Watermeyer and Chubb in 2018 concurred that, I quote, the panel had quite an influence on the criteria, including an admission that some types of more intangible evidence were more likely to be overlooked than other more concrete forms of evidence. I quote, privileging certain kinds of impacts. Other panellists interviewed spoke of their emotional and intellectual vulnerability in making judgments about an impact criterion that they had little prior experience of assessing. Derek, 2018, argued that this led many evaluators to base their assessments on more familiar proxies for excellence linked to scientific excellence, which led to biased interpretations and shortcuts, shortcuts that mimicked groupthink. This paper will, for the first time, empirically assess the content and language of the largest possible sample of research impact case studies that received high versus low scores from assessment panels in REF 2014. Combining qualitative thematic and quantitative linguistic analysis, we ask, one, how do high versus low scoring case studies articulate and evidence impacts linked to underpinning research? Two, how uh, sorry, do high-scoring and low-scoring case studies have differences in their linguistic features or styles? And three, do high-scoring and low-scoring case studies have lexical differences, that is, words and phrases that are statistically more likely to occur in high- or low-scoring case studies, or text-level differences, including reading ease, narrative clarity, or use of cohesive devices? By answering these questions, our goal is to provide evidence for impact case study authors and their institutions to reflect on in order to optimally balance the content and use of language that communicates their impact as effectively as possible. While directly relevant to the assessment of impact in the UK's research excellence framework, the work also provides insights of relevance to institutions internationally who are designing evaluation frameworks for research impact. We're going to move to the methods now and we're going to attempt to summarise 
Uh, so Bella, supervised by um, uh, Adam, um, uh, is uh, is focused on the, the quantitative. Just going to summarise that. I led on the qualitative aspect, so I'm going to summarise that. And hence, in the results section, then Bella will lead off on reading the quantitative, whereas I'll read on the qualitative. So good luck. Over to you to see if you can summarise uh, the six pages of, of methods in a way that uh, is hopefully easy enough to understand. Yeah, um, thanks for the best wishes. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave out some bits that are going more into the statistic details. So um, I'm not hiding anything here. It's all in the paper, but uh, just to make it slightly more manageable. So first of all, research design and sample. The data sets were generated by using published institutional REF 2014 impact scores to deduce the scores of impact case studies themselves. Although scores for individual case studies were not made public, we were able to identify case studies that received the top mark of four star based on the distribution of scores received by some institutions where the whole submission by an institution in a given unit of assessment was awarded the same score. In those 20 units of assessment, um, or UOAs for short, where high-scoring case studies could be identified in this way, that is, if they had a 100% four-star case um, for the submission. We also accessed all case studies known to have scored either one-star or two-star in order to compare the features of high-scoring case studies to those of low-scoring case studies. We approached our research questions with two separate studies using quantitative linguistic and qualitative thematic analysis, respectively. The thematic analysis, explained in more detail below 2.3, yeah, I will come on to that. <laughs> allowed us to find answers to research question one, which was how do high versus low scoring case studies articulate and evidence impacts linked to underpinning research? The quantitative linguistic analysis was used to extract and compare typical word combinations for high and low scoring case studies, as well as assessing their readability. So this mainly addressed research questions two and three um, about the linguistic features and text level differences. The quantitative linguistic analysis was based on a sample of all identifiable high scoring case studies in any unit of assessment. So that's uh, a total of 124 case studies where we can without doubt identify that they received four star and all identifiable low-scoring impact case studies and those UOAs where high-scoring case studies could be identified. So that's a total of 93 case studies. As the linguistic analysis focused on identifying characteristic language choices in running text, only those sections designed to contain predominantly text were included. So that's section one, summary of the impact, section two, underpinning research, and crucially section four, details of the impact. In order to detect patterns of content in high and low scoring case studies across all four main panels, a subsample of case studies was selected for a qualitative thematic analysis. This included 60% of high scoring case studies and 97% of low scoring case studies from the quantitative analysis, such that only units of assessment were included where both high and low scoring case studies are available, as opposed to the linguistic sample, which includes includes all available high-scoring case studies. 
Further selection criteria were then designed to create a greater balance in the number of high and low scoring case studies across main panels. Main panels A, um, high scoring, and C, low scoring, were particularly overrepresented in the uh, raw uh, selection. So a lower proportion of those case studies were selected and 10 additional high scoring case studies were considered in panel B. Um, to create a greater balance for the thematic analysis. The majority of case studies analysed are included in both samples, though that's 75% are uh, overlapping here. So, for the qualitative linguistic analysis... Quantitative. Sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, after trying to summarise the sample, what did I do with it? Great. So, for the quantitative linguistic analysis, um, this method, or methods in this vast field, can be used to make recurring patterns in language use visible and to assess their significance. We treated the data set of impact case studies as a text collection, the corpus in linguistics speak, divided into two sections, namely high and low scoring case studies, the two subcorpora, in order to explore the lexical profile and the readability of the case studies. One way to explore the lexical profile of groups of texts is to generate frequency-based word lists and compare these to word lists from a reference corpus to determine which words are characteristic of the corpus of interests, and these are called keywords. Another way is to extract word combinations that are particularly frequent. Such word combinations, called lexical bundles, are extended collocations that appear across a set range of texts. We merge these two approaches in order to uncover meanings that could not be made visible through the analysis of single word frequencies, comparing lexical bundles from each subcorpus to the other. I've got references to the software we used ANCONC in the paper. Two statistical measures were used in the analysis of lexical bundles. We used log likelihood as a measure of the statistical significance of frequency differences and log ratio as a measure of effect size, which quantifies the scale rather than the statistical significance of frequency differences between the two data sets. I'm going to skip the discussion of the merits of these methods here, but feel free to read up on it in the paper. In the thematic analysis, it appeared that high-scoring case studies were easier to read. That's comments that our co-analyzers um, uh, co also made. In order to quantify the readability of the texts, we therefore analyzed them using the CoMetrics online tool developed by McNamara et al. in 2014. This tool provides 106 descriptive indices of language features including eight principal component scores developed from combinations of the other indices. We selected these principal component scores as comprehensive measures of reading ease because they assess multiple characteristics of the text up to whole text discourse level. This was supplemented by the traditional and more widespread flash reading ease score of readability measuring the length of words and sentences, which are highly correlated with reading speed. Great. So let's move on to the qualitative thematic analysis now. It's a little bit shorter. Um, 
So while a quantitative analysis, as Bell has just described, can make differences in the use of certain words visible, it does not capture the narrative or content of the texts under investigation. So in order to identify common features of high and low scoring case studies, thematic analysis was chosen to complement the quantitative analysis by identifying patterns and inferring meaning from the qualitative data. To familiarise themselves uh, with the data and for intercoder reliability, two research team members read a selection of the 2014 impact case studies from different main panels before generating initial codes for each of the five sections of the impact case study template. These were discussed with the full research team comprising three academic and three professional services staff who had all read multiple case studies themselves. They were, piloted, they were piloted prior to defining a final set of themes and questions against which the data was coded, based on the six-step process outlined by Braun and Clark, 2006. There's a table in the paper if you want to see what those, uh, those categories are. An additional category was used to code stylistic features to triangulate elements of the quantitative analysis, for example, readability, and to include additional stylistic features difficult to assess in quantitative terms, for example, effective use of testimonials. In addition to this, 10 different types of impact were coded for based on my 2018 typology. Capacity and preparedness, awareness and understanding, policy, attitudinal change, behaviour change and other forms of decision making, other social, economic, environmental, health and wellbeing and cultural impacts. There was room for coders to include additional insights arising in each section of the case study that had not been captured in the coding system, and there was room to summarise other key factors they thought might account for high or low scores. Coders summarised case study content pertaining to each code, for example, by listing examples of effective or poor use of structure and formatting as they arose in each case study. Coders also quoted the original material next to their summaries so that their interpretation could be assessed during subsequent analysis. This initial coding of case study texts was conducted by six coders with intercoder reliability based on 10% of the sample assessed at over 90%. Subsequent thematic analysis within the codes was conducted by two of the co-authors, being Ballard. This uh, involved categorising coded material into themes as a way of assigning meaning to features that occurred across multiple case studies, for example, categorising types of corroborating evidence typically used in high versus low scoring case studies. You've made it through the method section, and so have we. <laughs> so uh, we're now moving on to the results and discussion. In this section, we integrate findings from the quantitative linguistic study and the qualitative analysis of low versus high scoring case studies. The results are discussed under four headings based on the key findings that emerge from both analyses. Taken together, these findings provide the most comprehensive evidence to date of the characteristics of a top-rated four-star impact case study in REF 2014. So the first of these four headings, um, which is actually a summary of uh, the first headline finding, is that highly, highly rated case studies provided specific, high magnitude and well-evidenced articulations of significance and reach. 
So one finding from our qualitative thematic analysis was that 84% of high scoring cases articulated benefits to specific groups and provided evidence of their significance and reach compared to 32% of low scoring case studies, which typically focused instead on the pathway to impact. For example, describing dissemination of research findings and engagement with stakeholders and publics without citing the benefits arising from dissemination or engagement. One way of conceptualizing this difference is using the content-process distinction, whereas low-scoring case studies tended to focus on the process through which impact was sought, i.e. the pathway used. The high-scoring case studies tended to focus on the content of the impact itself, i.e. what change or improvement occurred as a result of the research. Examples of global reach were evidenced across high-scoring case studies from all, from all panels, including Panel D for Arts and Humanities research, but were less often claimed or evidenced in low-scoring case studies. Where reach was more limited geographically, many high-scoring case studies used context to create robust arguments that their reach was impressive in that context, describing reach, for example, in social or cultural terms, or arguing that the importance of reaching a narrow but hard um, uh, arguing for the importance of reaching a narrow but hard to reach or otherwise important target group. Now I've got a table here which provides examples of evidence from high scoring case studies and low scoring case studies that were used to show significance and reach of impacts in REF 2014. And um, I'll start with significance and just give you a flavour of some of the kinds of examples of evidence from high-scoring case studies that were used to articulate evidence. So, for example, evidence of benefits for specific beneficiary groups that have happened during the eligibility period, rather than anticipated future impacts. These high-scoring case studies are uh, articulating evidence that has come from credible sources and is used to substantiate specific claims. For example, official data showing a 430% increase in approvals of biopesticides, or peer-reviewed analysis showing that the BBC changed its coverage based on recommendations from research. These high-scoring case studies, uh, for example, might have evidence that a new policy or practice works and has developed and has delivered benefits, for example, via an internal or external independent review, primary or secondary data collection or testimonials, or limiting the claim to changes in policy or practice where it's too early to assess their effect but not overclaiming. Or finally, these high-scoring case studies articulating evidence of uh, significance uh, by using robust research or evaluation designs to evidence impact, with robustness demonstrated through triangulation for qualitative mixed methods evaluations or through statistical significance and treatment control designs, for example, randomised controlled trials. Now, take that and contrast that with the kinds of examples of evidence that we were finding um, in the uh, in the low scoring ones. So, for example, research leads to an activity or other pathway, but with no evidence that these pathways led to actual impacts. In some cases, the claim is in fact for potential future impacts. Or evidence being used vaguely, for example, and I quote here, evaluative data indicate the majority of users have changed the way they work. Uh, and in this case, it doesn't describe the number of users or the nature of that change. Uh, 
Uh, in these low-scoring case studies, uh, they may talk about the impact of future policy implementation, um, uh, where it's either they're claiming something in future or implying something, but the evidence actually only relates to the policy formation itself. Uh, we might see poorly designed evaluation undermining the credibility of that evidence. For example, there's no baseline, there's no before or after comparison group to demonstrate changes were actually as a result of the research. Uh, testimonials might describe impacts of their organisation rather than the research or describe engagement with researchers but no impact and an over-reliance on estimates, especially in testimonials, without more concrete evidence. Now looking at reach in the high-scoring ones, first of all, we might see examples um, uh, such as addressing a challenge that was uniquely felt by a particular group on a sub-national scale, so that specificity of the claim. Uh, successfully helping hard-to-reach groups that others have previously not been able to reach. Uh, reaching significantly more than previous initiatives. So there's that context in there. For example, a poetry event that attracted, quote, twice the national average for such events. Or evidence of strong pathways to impact from well-respected international organisations or groups with strong influence at other relevant scales, for example, via funding for research or dissemination of research via policy documents or new working practices. Uh, so uh, there are pathways, we're asked to describe the pathway, but these are very strong and, and credible pathways in the high-scoring ones. And in the low-scoring ones, uh, in terms of how the uh, evidence reach, this might be claimed internationally or across multiple groups, sometimes implicitly, but convincing evidence is only presented for national or sometimes even sub-national benefits for, or for a small proportion of the groups who are claimed to have benefited. Uh, or alternatively, claims of reach based on the global reach of an organisation or initiative might be made uh, using the output of research without specifying the impact that the research activity or output has actually had on that organisation. So, Bella, on to the quantitative. Yeah, so we're still under the same subhendic of providing specific, high-magnitude and well-evidenced articulations of significance and reach. Um, I also have a table uh, which shows uh, how high-scoring impact case studies contain more phrases that specify reach, such as in England and or in the US, compared to low-scoring case studies that use the more generic term international, leaving the reader in doubt about the actual reach. They also included more phrases that implicitly specified the significance of the impact, for example, the government or the to the House of Commons, compared to low-scoring cases, which provided more generic phrases such as policy and practice, rather than detailing specific policies or practices that have been changed. So I've got this table here with uh, some more terms and putting them in context and examples. So for example, the government um, is a phrase that appears mainly in section four, and uh, might look like cited in the government's consultation document or the government's anti-poverty strategy, the government's education policy. If you get your hands on the paper, um, there are examples for the following further search terms. Um, the department for or the department produced by um, the house of, um, so Mark and I class these as significance related. 
um, and reach related phrases that are significantly more frequent in high scoring case studies are um, as I said specific phrases such as in the US, the UK's, of the UK, in England and so on. The quantitative linguistic analysis also identified a number of words and phrases pertaining to engagement and pathways which were intended to deliver impact but did not actually specify impact. A number of phrases contained the word dissemination and there were several words and phrases specifying types of engagement that could be considered more one-way dissemination than consultative or co-productive. Um, there's more on that in uh, Mark's uh, 2018 engagement typology, such as the book and the event. The focus on dissemination supports the finding from the qualitative thematic analysis that low scoring cases tended to focus more on pathways or routes than on impact. Although it is, not it is not possible to infer this directly from the data, it is possible that this may represent a deeper epistemological position underpinning some case studies where impact generation was seen as one-way knowledge or technology transfer and research findings were perceived as something that could be given unchanged to publics and stakeholders through dissemination activities with the assumption that this would be understood as intended and lead to impact. So specifying three um, particular problem particularly problematic terms here, one is involved in, um, such as stakeholders were involved in the work. Um, there are problems with that. One is involved in what ways, it doesn't really say that. And if this is applied to the researcher, so if you say the researcher is involved in, um, this phrase does not convey agency. So uh, if you say the researcher, researcher was involved in the project, it doesn't, yeah. it's not specific enough. Um, has been disseminated is another one. So actually all of these are statistically more frequent in the low scoring case studies and has been disseminated. The problem with that is that disseminated is one directional and quite often those case studies then don't say what happened next. And then the event is a very is another search term um, and the problem with that it's not specific enough it's worth noting actually that none of the four uk countries appear significantly more often in either high or low scoring case studies outside of the phrase in england and wales scotland and northern ireland appear slightly more often in high scoring case studies but the difference is not significant an additional factor to take into account is that our data set includes only submissions that are either high or low scoring and the geographical spread of the submitting institutions was not a factor in selecting texts. There was a balanced number of high and low scoring case studies in the sample from English, Scottish and Welsh universities, but no guaranteed low scoring submissions from Northern Irish institutions. The REF 2014 guidance made it clear that impacts in each UK country would be evaluated equally in comparison to each other, the UK and other countries. While the quantitative analysis of case studies from our sample only found a statistically significant difference for the phrase in England and, this combined with a slightly higher number of phrases containing the other countries of the UK in higher scoring case studies, so this might indicate that this panel guidance was implemented as instructed. Great. 
So um, we've got a, a figure in the paper. Um, if you want to follow uh, with the paper, this is figure three. Yeah. Um, uh, and this shows the, the different types of impact that could be identified in high or low scoring case studies, respectively, in the qualitative thematic analysis. Um, so we've divided this up against the, the 10 types or, of, of impacts that I've got in the Research Impact Handbook. Uh, so um, uh, on the, the table, they're all add up to 100 because uh, you can claim more than one impact uh, per case study, um, just in case that looks a bit strange when you look at it. Um, and um, and yeah, high scoring impact case studies described on average 2.8 impacts compared to an average of 1.8 impacts described by low scoring impact case studies. Um, the, this is figure four, yeah. Figure three. Sorry, we've changed the finger numbers. That's yes, point. right. Yeah. Um, the next figure in the paper <laughs> shows the number of impacts per type as a percentage of the total number of impacts claimed in high versus low scoring case studies. And this shows that high scoring case studies were more likely to claim health or well-being and policy impacts, whereas low scoring case studies were more likely to claim understanding and awareness impacts. Looking at this by main panel, over 50% of high-scoring case studies in main panel A claimed health and well-being, policy, and understanding and awareness impacts. Whereas over 50% of low-scoring case studies in main panel A claimed capacity-building impacts. There were relatively high numbers of economic and policy claimed but in both high and low scoring case studies in main panels B and C respectively, with no impact type dominating strongly in main panel D. Right, so much for the um, evidencing significance and reach finding. Uh, we're now moving to the second section of the results, which is um, our headline finding that highly rated case studies use distinct features to establish links between research as the cause and impact as the effect. I'm simplifying here, but we're simplifying for the heading. So findings from the quantitative linguistic analysis show that high scoring case studies were significantly more likely to include attributional phrases like cited in, used to do something and resulting in compared to low scoring case studies. Again, I've got a table here providing examples for some of the 12 phrases more frequently found in high scoring case studies. However, there were some attributional phrases that were more likely to be found in low scoring case studies, such as from the, of the research, and this work has, so that's a total of nine different phrases. Um, so we've got um, in high, more, sorry, more frequent and high scoring case studies, we've got, for example, led by a professor. That is usually followed by a name, but sometimes by the specialism of the name. And that's often preceded by the team or group or the research led by a professor such and such, or led by professor of um, this or that specialism. We've got cited in, that could look like cited in the guideline and organ donation, cited in the Financial Times. Um, used to, I did check, if anyone's wondering, I weeded out any examples of we used to do that. <laughs> so uh, I'm looking here at things, like, at things like used to inform and target a range of strategies. So this research, this outcome was used to do that. 
or our survey methods and evaluation measures are used to assess quality. That is a really good phrase actually because it shows that something happened with or that the whatever it is has been used rather than being just disseminated, linking back to the uh, problems I outlined earlier. And just to yes. be clear, these are all examples uh, of lexical bundles that were more common in the high scoring. So these are, are in theory, good things. Yeah. Yes, we hope. Um, other examples include improve the or resulting in. Um, yeah. To investigate this further, the use of these attributional phrases, all um, roughly 600 instances of attributional phrases in high and low scoring case studies respectively were analysed by Mark painstakingly <laughs> to categorise the context in which they were used in order to establish the extent to which these phrases in each corpus part were being used to establish attribution to impacts. The first word or phrase preceding or succeeding the attributional content was coded as such. For example, if the attributional content was used the, followed by research to generate impact, the first word succeeding the attributional content, in this case research, was coded rather than the phrase it subsequently led to, generate impact. According to a Pearson chi-square test, high-scoring case studies were significantly more likely to establish attribution to impact than low-scoring case studies. Got a massive significance, but a fairly low effect size. Um, small. Uh, we've got all those stats summarised in a table in the paper as well. 18% um, of phrases in the low scoring corpus established attribution to impact compared to 37 phrases in the high scoring corpus. For example, 37%. Yeah. 37, sorry. Percent of phrases. 37% of the phrases in the high score, so double the amount mm. in the high scoring corpus stated that research pathway or something else led to the impact via either this or a different word. Instead, low-scoring case studies were more likely to establish attribution to research, 40%, compared to high-scoring cases, 28%. Both high- and low-scoring case studies were similarly likely to establish attribution to pathways. Great, so lots more stats in there if you want to look into that. but. Um In addition to those um, attributional phrases, more low-scoring case studies were more likely to include ambiguous or uncertain phrases. For example, the phrase a number of can be read to imply that it is not known how many instances there were. This occurred in all sections of the impact case studies, for example, in the underpinning research section as the research exp explores a number of themes, or in the summary or details of the impact section, as the work has also resulted in a number of other national and international impacts, which is quite vague, or has influenced approaches and practices of a number of partner organizations. Similarly, an impact on could give the impression that, sorry, the phrase an impact on could give the impression that the nature of the impact is not known or at least not clearly definable, specified. This phrase, an impact on, occurred only in summary and details of the impact sections. For example, these activities have had an impact on the professional development of whoever it is. 
the research has had an impact on the legal arguments or there has also been an impact on the work of regional agency. What was the impact? In the qualitative thematic analysis, we found that only 50% of low-scoring case studies clearly linked the underpinning research to claimed impact, compared to 97% of high-scoring case studies, which did succeed in doing that. This gave the impression of overclaimed impacts in some low-scoring submissions. For example, one case study claimed, I quote, significant impacts on a country's society. Uh, I've blanked out the name of the country, so it's less identifiable. Based on enhancing the security of a new IT system in the department responsible for publishing and archiving legislation. Another claimed, quote, economic impact on a worldwide scale based on billions of pounds of benefits calculating, calculated using an undisclosed method by an undisclosed evaluator in an unpublished final report by the research team. One case study claimed attribution for impact based on similarities between a prototype developed by the researchers and a product subsequently launched by a major, major corporation without any evidence that the product, as launched, was based on the prototype. Similar assumptions were made in a number of other case studies that appeared to conflate correlation with causation in their attempts to infer attribution between research and impact. Uh, table 9 in the paper, I'm going to summarise, uh, provides examples of different ways in which links between research and impact were evidence in the details of the research section. So uh, we've got examples, first of all, of how links between research and impact were evidenced um, uh, in uh, so successfully. And then we've got examples of problems establishing links between research and impact. Um, and these are not categorised by high or low, low scoring because actually there's a mix in, in both. Uh, not all the high scoring ones did this perfectly uh, and vice versa. So examples of, of how uh, research and impact were linked and, and evidenced uh, could include descriptions of pathways to impact demonstrating a causal chain from impact all the way back to the research with each link in that causal chain evidenced clearly. Or all claimed impacts clearly arise from the research. Uh, problems of getting that link working and getting evidence include Research leads to an activity or other pathway, but with no evidence that these pathways led to impact. Claims that research was used without explaining how or to what effect. Call and effect implied, but not stated or evidenced explicitly. Linked to research only established for some, but not all of the impacts that are claimed. Important missing links and causal chains from research to impact. And the nature of the claim means that it would be impossible to attribute impact to the research. And this was, in fact, explicitly acknowledged in some case studies. We can't prove this, and we're not going to try effectively. Uh, another uh, set of uh, examples of where people successfully linked uh, research to impact would be citation of the research and policy documents, often supported by testimonials detailing the contribution that the research made. By contrast, uh, a problem in this uh, category would be policy change that coincidentally matches research recommendations without any citation or testimony to demonstrate that the change was in fact linked to the research. 
Uh, a successful example would be spin-out companies that commercialize specific research findings versus spin-out companies that work in a similar area to the research with no explicit link between products and services and specific research findings or whose main activities are not linked to the research. In successful examples of this link working, we've got a clear distinction between research, pathways to impact, and impact, showing how excellent research led to impact. Um, and then we've got uh, impacts in section four, mapped against research findings, and those, uh, that, that kind of mapping and uh, links uh, established within the text between those two sections. On the other hand, um, we see uh, where this hasn't worked, descriptions of underpinning research that describes the pathway to impact more than or instead of the originality, significance and rigour of the research, making it difficult to identify the research findings that impacts have actually arisen from, or no explicit reference back to the underpinning research in the description of impact, they're, they're just completely disconnected. Uh, and finally, uh, some other examples of how people made this work, uh, research that was commissioned by the organisation that implemented the findings, or other evidence of close collaboration and buy-in from early in the research process, for example, via researchers in organisational roles or placements, researchers as practitioners, or evidence of embeddedness of researchers within communities or cultures. And by contrast, when this wasn't working, we often had limited information about the pathway to impact, meaning the causal links between research and impact are implicit only, rather than explicitly described and credible. Uh, we've got another table showing how corroborating sources were used to support these claims. So we went and thematically coded each section, and I'm going to run through some of the examples of what works and what doesn't work in that final section five in a moment. But first of all, 82% 80, of high-scoring case studies compared to 7% of low-scoring case studies were identified in the qualitative thematic analysis as, ha as having generally high-quality corroborating evidence. Um, and I'll, I'll explain what low-quality and high-quality looks like with the table in a moment uh, based on this qualitative analysis. In contrast, 11% of high-scoring case studies compared to 71% of low-scoring case studies were identified as having corroborating evidence that was vague and or poorly linked to claimed impact. Looking at only case studies that claim policy impact, 11 out of 26 high-scoring case studies in the sample described both policy and implementation. That's 42% compared to just 5 out of 29 low-scoring case studies that included both policy and implementation, or 17%. The remainder described policy impacts only, with no evidence of benefits arising from implementation. High-scoring case studies were more likely to cite evidence of impacts rather than just citing evidence pertaining to the pathway, which was more common in the low-scoring case studies. High-scoring policy case studies also provided evidence pertaining to the pathway, but because they typically also included evidence of policy change, this evidence helped attribute policy impacts to research. So, uh, what does a good corroborating ev evidence section look like? Um, and these are from now high-scoring case studies. First of all, they're credible. So examples of credibility in the high-scoring ones are testimonials from high-level stakeholders in the highly relevant organisations, for example, NHS, World Health Organisation. Independent evidence from other research teams, highly credible organisations, um, for example, a WHO report or secondary data sources or government statistics. And peer-reviewed evidence of, of impact from impact case study authors often. 
uh, for example, showing impact on computing speed or RCTs, a quote from a journal article by a museum's head of research showing impact of research on curatorial practice. And in the low scoring ones, we've got examples of uh, corroborating evidence um, that uh, typically show potential conflicts of interest that undermine the credibility of a source. Uh, so they're not now looking um, credible. So a case study corroborated by testimonials from those who commissioned the research. A publisher commenting on the success of the book they published. Statements on spin-out company websites. Unpublished or non-peer-reviewed reports by the team responsible for the impact uh, or testimonial from staff at the submitting unit. Uh, the next category of uh, examples of corroborating evidence is evidence uh, of pathways versus impact. Um, and as me and Bella review case studies, um, normally actually the majority of the corroborating evidence is for pathways rather than impact, which is a, a waste, uh, if nothing else. So on the high scoring ones, we've got evidence of claimed impacts, for example, links to NICE guidelines or new industry standards, explaining how and when research is cited, evidence of audience or visitor numbers. Also in the high scoring ones, we've got a link to government press release showing a policy was based on research by the submitting unit. Testimonials about the impact of the research contained in media reports. Uh, evidence of policy engagement to attribute impact to research in cases where policy impacts were achieved and evidence of impacts arising from evidence-based policy rather than just evidence of policy change. Uh, on the other hand, in the low-scoring ones, we're seeing things like download figures and other statistics relating to pathway rather than the actual reach of an impact that is significant. Uh, a funding proposal, for example, original knowledge transfer partnership application, collaboration agreements, links to project websites and Facebook pages, lists of media coverage without explaining what impact they evidence, a link to training materials rather than the evidence that training had benefits, links to conference and other presentations, evidence of policy engagements with no evidence of policy impact, Evidence of policy change in context where there are doubts over likelihood of implementation or enforcement uh, and evidence of policy change without explaining which aspects were linked to the research. And two more left, eligibility of impacts uh, uh, evidenced. Um, so uh, in the case of the high scoring ones, we've only got eligible impacts being evidence, simple. Uh, but in the low scoring ones, we've got evidence of um, uh, potential future interest rather than retrospective impact claims. So not eligible, therefore no point in providing that evidence. Evidence that research was cited by other researchers, that's um, known as academic impact. Um, uh, indicators of esteem, such as keynote presentations, an invitation to contribute to an article in the Guardian newspaper, that kind of thing. And then finally, uh, there's a category here which is around specificity and link to impact. Uh, so in the high scoring case studies, uh, we've got corroborating evidence which is specific and it's clearly linked to impact. For example, a narrative explaining what each source corroborates with references to page numbers where relevant. Uh, and corroborating evidence is provided for all of the claimed impacts, not just some. By contrast, in the low scoring ones, you've got lists of names without positions and affiliations that don't state what the person is able to corroborate and they're not cross-referenced to a quote from a testimonial in the case study. Um, we've got lists of hyperlinks, reports or other forms of evidence that are not cited in the details of the impact section and do not explain what claims they evidence. 
Uh, my most embarrassing one, I think, that, that we found was a generic customer service email address to corroborate impact. Seriously. Actually, I think the most embarrassing that we've seen was Wikipedia. Oh, yeah, it, it gets worse. It does get worse. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, lists of research outputs without explaining how they corroborate impacts. No impact, sorry, no evidence provided to support key claims. So, for example, missing economic data or testimonials to corroborate economic impact. Missing evidence for claimed impacts, for example, a single piece of corroborating evidence from one individual beneficiary saying that they were use, using an endangered language in a new way. Um, so, yeah, one person is doing something and now based on that we've got a whole change. Uh, and then finally, a claim for causality based on the similarity of two devices uh, uh, is not supported. Or, yeah, in one embarrassing case, um, there was an, uh, two images and look, they look the same. Um, and that's the evidence uh, that, uh, that uh, so co confusing uh, causality and um, uh, correlation. correlation, thank you. <laughs> Great. So at this point, we're going to pause. Um, so you've been listening for a very long time. Um, we've been talking for a long time and have other things that we need to do. Um, so hopefully you've got something from this already, two key findings. You want to have an understanding of where this is coming from. Uh, for me, the next two out of four that are coming are amongst the most interesting. So uh, we're going to release all of these episodes at the same time. Uh, so you can now move on to the next episode. Um, but if you wish, uh, like us, go and uh, take a wee break, get yourself a cup of tea and then come back for more. <laughs>